Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 67. Well, hello, hello, my beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Healing Catalyst podcast. And to all of my South Asian sisters and brothers, aunties and uncles, happy Diwali from me and my family to you and yours. May light shine through darkness today and every day through our words, through our actions and from our hearts. May we all see the light that lives within each of us for it is the spark that comes from the same source. You know, the Vali is the festival of lights, symbolic of the spiritual victory of light over darkness, good over evil, and knowledge over ignorance. It's about the internal dialogue that we each have within that comes from connection to our inner knowing, to our higher self. And it seems really fitting that this week, as we continue with our intention for the month of October of connection to self, that we are going to explore connection to self through silence and stillness through meditation with my guest, Dr. Romy Mushtaq. Dr. Romy is a board certified physician, award winning wellness speaker, and the founder of the Brain Shift at Work. She brings together over 20 years of authority and experience in neurology, integrative medicine, and mindfulness to not just deliver programs, but to create cultural change. She's on a mission to transform mental health and wellness in the workplace and currently works with Fortune 500 companies, professional athletes, and global associations. Dr. Romy is also the chief wellness officer for Evolution Hospitality, where she scaled a mindfulness and wellness program to over 7,000 employees. Her expertise is featured in the national media, such as NPR, NBC, TED Talks, and Forbes. In her conversation, Dr. Romy and I dive into the difference between mindfulness and meditation and the science of meditation. Dr. Romy breaks down the three phases of what actually happens in the body and the brain when we meditate, specifically the immediate effects, the short-term effects, and the long-term effects. We also dive into the pattern interruption that meditation allows, moving us into a different state of mind and how meditation allows for connection to self through a connection to a universal intelligence. And make sure you stay until the end when Dr. Romy tells us about her brain shift protocol that helps to quiet what she calls the busy brain and burnout. You know, I met Romy earlier this year and we had an instantaneous connection. I so deeply respect her and her work, and she is indeed a soul sister of mine. I'm so happy to share my beautiful conversation with Dr. Romy Mushtaq about connection to self through meditation. Romy, I am so excited to talk to you, sister. I have been wanting to get you on this podcast since I met you earlier this year. You're a brilliant neurologist and doing so much in mindset and mindfulness, integrative medicine. 
I have so many questions for you. I can't wait to talk to you. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Uh, my sister Avantir, as we say in our culture, Api is for sister. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's an honor to be present for you and your listeners. I don't take anybody's time for granted. And so if they were drawn to listen to today's episode, whether they're coming from your community or my community, uh, welcome. Welcome to the sisterhood. Yeah, thank you so much. And so, you know, I wanted to spend some time today talking about meditation. And, you know, I've never really had an episode on this podcast. It's funny because I've done almost 70 episodes. I've talked about it, but I've never had an expert like you on, a neurologist who does this, you know, every day in their integrative medicine work, your neurology practice. So I feel like you just bring this beautiful perspective of the Western medical perspective of meditation. And then also our, you know, Eastern perspective being a South Asian woman in medicine. And so let's start sort of talking about meditation and what happens in the brain. Like, you know, there's so many studies. I mean, meditation is actually one of the best studied modalities from the Eastern traditions in Western medicine. It has so much data. What's actually happening in the brain when we meditate? Hmm. Oh, such great questions. And I'm going to break I break it down because I heard so many statements and, and everything yeah. you were saying. And, you know, I start by saying this is we've gone from introducing meditation when I gave my TED talk back in 2014. And it seemed crazy that I was talking as a doctor, practicing meditation, teaching it to other companies and helping stress and burnout to now this the pendulum has swung the other way, kind of like exercise. Everybody knows, okay, I know I should meditate. I know it's good for me. I would do it, but I can't shut off my brain. Um, you know, your watch may beep and be like, it's time for a mindful pause. And you just beat your watch and I'm going, I don't got time for this. Right. Right. And, and so I think I want to really honor that journey and um, just say, before you turn this podcast off and give it a side eye going, girl, I don't need another lecture on meditation. Just sit with the sisterhood, sit with my sister Avanti and I, and we're going to welcome you in no matter where your state of your brain is. So I always start by this story, if it's okay. And I think it helps other people understand. I loathe that meditation got these images on Instagram of largely Caucasian women sitting in skimpy matching yoga clothes in Um, lotus position or other complicated positions, holding their hand in a certain mudra, which wasn't always right, and showing off fashion and their toned bodies. I mean, great for them. I'm not judging them. But that really skewed what meditation means in the Western world. And when I think of my mindfulness and meditation teachers around the world who are from different religion and spiritual backgrounds, I think most of us just scratch our heads at what's happened to meditation in the United States, that it's become capitalized. It's just like a car, Avante. People will be like, are you going to buy a Mercedes or a Ford pickup truck? Um, They couldn't be more different and the needs different. You know, there are different types of meditation. And then people will often take a meditation that is of an Eastern tradition and put their name on it and say, this is Romy's meditation. This is Avanti's meditation. And my meditation is better than yours. And no, I have a study. And all of that has gotten us so confused. So I really want to welcome in the listener and talk about how I first define meditation. And that's being still and being present. 
when we look at the various Buddhist traditions of meditation, they talk about being present without judgment and detached from emotion. And in my world as a neurologist, and we work with Fortune 500 companies, so we're dealing with highly success-driven people. They were like, what do you mean be still and not have judgment (laughs) and not have emotions? Like I have multiple browser windows open on my computer right now and multiple browser windows open on my brain. And I feel Mm -hmm. like meditation is that. Um, There is a, you know, meditation or way to pause and be present in every major religion of the world. And even for those people who choose not to practice any religion or be on a spiritual path or be agnostic or atheist, for me, meditation is this brain training to be still and be present. And gosh, doesn't it become ever so difficult in this modern day world? So I really wanted to just start with that introduction and how I approach meditation. And then I'll start answering maybe some of your detailed questions about the brain science. What what do you think? And what would you say? Because you are an advocate of meditation and mindfulness yourself. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, you know, I was actually going to say, I totally agree because I think the thing that comes up so much from students and patients and people that I, you know, speak to and teach is this exact question of, I don't know how to meditate. I don't get it because I cannot sit still in a lotus position on the floor, on a cushion and empty my mind. And I just always giggle when they say that. I'm like, if you empty your mind and you're not thinking this idea that you're going to not have any thoughts when you're meditating, you're not alive because as long (laughs) as we're alive and breathing, we are thinking whether it's conscious or subconscious, right? Agreed, agreed. Oh my God, I say the same thing in lectures because I often set people up and say, how many people feel like they've tried and failed at meditation? And the entire audience will raise their exactly. hand. You know, it is a wise Buddhist saying of emptying your mind. But when I talk to my Buddhist teachers and mindfulness, it's not that they say, <laughs> yes, your thought is it. When they say empty your mind, it's take your focus off of your worries or a focus or a story of an image and learn to become detached from it. And I say the same thing that unless you're under general anesthesia or dead, right. <laughs> you're not going to have an empty mind. It's, it's this idea of if I can control my mind, I can control the situation. So I think that's where we talk about meditation and being mindfulness. Now, mindfulness is having present-centered awareness. And we can have that present-centered awareness when we're eating, when we're walking as leaders, when we're in conversation and listening. Meditation is actually the act of finding present-centered awareness. And regardless of what religious path someone has, the way I say we do this is really an act of starting with controlled breathing and being present with the breath. And then there's various types of meditation after that. And I'm here as a doctor who keep tries to keep up with the plethora of studies that you mentioned to say, please don't fall into the trap of what car is better, what style of meditation is better, what style of meditation should I be doing? What we know is whether it is mindfulness meditation, mantra meditation, centering prayer meditation, you know, a focus meditation, they all have the equal and same benefits in the brain and on health and well-being. And so sometimes I know there's like a big menu and you're like, where do I start? And we'll, you and I will dig into that in a, in a minute or two here. But 
I really kind of wanted to give that 30,000 foot view of meditation before we jumped right into science. No, and I love that. Thank you for doing that. I want to click into one thing you just said, which I think is so important. The nuanced difference between mindfulness and meditation, because again, the language that we are using in Western culture, everything is getting collapsed, whether it's cleanse and detox or, you know, mindfulness and meditation or, you know, yoga and asana, like everything gets collapsed. And it's actually, there are nuanced differences that are so important. And so what you said, and I want to repeat this and make sure that I'm, I'm saying this the right way, is that you're saying that mindfulness is this awareness, right? Versus meditation is the act of the awareness. Yeah. I really paraphrased it, but mindfulness is your state of being a present centered awareness. So when you mm -hmm. practice meditation, it makes us more mindful. And we learn to be more present with our children or with your employees or more present when you're eating, right? Um, and meditation is the actual action and act of saying, what can I do to bring my brain to present-centered awareness? And mindfulness-based meditation, which you know largely comes from the Eastern traditions uh, of Buddhism, are, are that. And so I want to be clear on that. So I thank you for helping that distinction. Yeah, no, I think that's really important because I think it's very easy to confuse the two and again, to collapse them. And so it can be actually very confusing because if someone is talking to you about being mindful or having mindfulness or, you know, eating mindfully or acting mindfully, right? That is not the same as meditation as you're distinguishing. So I think that's a really important point for us to click into. Thank you. Yeah. So let's move into the brain science of meditation. I, I think that your introduction was beautiful of that, you know, 30,000 foot view, but let's go into like what actually happens in the brain when we're meditating. So it, it's actually a form of biohacking. The brain is how I describe it, that we're changing the internal state of how our brain is structured and how it functions when we meditate. So don't fall victim to, you know, I see wellness lectures or segments on TV and people will point to one region of the brain and say, if you meditate, you're going to fall in love. If you meditate, this section of the brain lights up and you're no longer depressed. Poof. Right. Yeah, I wish the brain was that simple, but it really isn't. And what I want to start again from a 30,000 foot view is there is a complex change in multiple networks in your brain when you meditate for the first time, whether it's five or 20 minutes. And then there are other changes that happen in complex networks and the structure and function of the brain when you meditate regularly for, um, you know, they typically, the studies are four to six weeks. And then if you're a lifelong meditator, there's even different sets of changes we see. So immediate, uh, short-term and long-term changes that we see. And then always remember this, that just from a basic neuroscience part, our brain controls every organ system in the body. So when you meditate and there's changes in these networks, it positively impacts your hormone system, your digestion, your breathing, your respiration. So that's kind of something I want to tie into. So let's, can, we'll talk, start with the immediate effects of meditation. I, you know, if someone is listening and they haven't meditated for a long time, or they're like, oh, I did it once here and it felt so good. Or you were in my lecture and you meditate and you're like, I need to get back. Why did that feel so good in a room full of people? Um, or even if you put your headset on and listen to a guided meditation from an app. 
what immediately will happen when we have about three to five minutes of deep breathing. And for those that really look at the different types of yogic or pranayamic breathing, um, it's when the inhalation is shorter than the exhalation, you're actually helping to calm down the acute stress network or the fight or flight response. We know this, we blow off extra CO2. There is changes in the blood vessels that start in our carotid receptor at the neck and signal the autonomic nervous system of the brain to calm down and releasing what we call the start of uh, you know, a parasympathetic responsive relaxation. And that's just in the first three to five minutes. And so the stress hormones go down and we see rather than being in fight or flight or a sympathetic response from the autonomic nervous system, we've now switched over like a light switch to the parasympathetic response and it's cueing the brain to relax and calm down. And in that three to five minutes, we, we say, you know, I'm a chief wellness officer at Evolution Hospitality. Uh, we have over 7,000 employees. Power of Pause is our custom mindfulness program that I lead. That in that three to five minutes, we meditate as a team. It could prevent you from having that angry outburst at a colleague or saying something that you're going to regret um, or um, mindlessly finishing an entire bag of potato chips because you're stress eating. That, that's exactly what happens in that three to five minutes in very simple terms. And now once you continue beyond the deep breathing and you decide that either you're going to sit in quiet you're going to recite or repeat a mantra, a phrase or a word, or stare at a candle. That benefit in your brain continues. And that we know as the parasympathetic response releases, now you're going to start seeing some of the other feel-good hormones in the brain get stimulated. Um, initially, it's some of our serotonin and oxytocin that feel good, sleep good, love hormone. And you're like, wait, I don't want to meditate in the day. I'm going to fall asleep. No, that doesn't happen. Because if you're sitting there long enough, I kind of describe you start to get something known like the runner's high, that a dopamine surge. It's uh, often what the spiritual teachers and we'll talk about, you know, coming to a sense of self or your inner knowing what that happens. And that we know can happen within 20 minutes. And then the physical responses of just one session in 20 minutes, we now know you've disengaged the networks that typically make someone anxious. If you're having ruminating thoughts in the frontal lobe, the executive center, and it actually disengages the anxiety center and brings back the executive function in the brain. So now after 20 minutes, if you have multiple browser windows open on your computer and brain, and you've been stuck on a project, all of a sudden there starts to be an ability to improve your focus or improve your emotion to that. Um, and then a lot of benefits, even from one meditation session, you, we see the heart rate start to come down back to normal or lower blood pressure as well, digestion. So it can just having a meditation session, um, you know, uh, daily improves the ability of gut motility and it relaxes. So, you know, whether you're on the loose stool or constipated side, it just helps to bring that into balance. And so that's a very simplified term of what's going on. You can ask me more questions. And that's immediate meditation, the, just the first part. Right. That's the immediate. And mm -hmm. we're going to talk about short-term, you know, longer yeah. term. But what's interesting about what you said is that it's almost like it interrupts a pattern, right? You know, the browser windows, you close them, it's like resetting, but you're interrupting a pattern, which I think 
is one of the most powerful things for so many people who are dealing with so many mental health issues, so much anxiety and anger and stress and just all of these emotions, especially since we've been in this with pandemic world, I don't even know how to describe it anymore. <laughs> um, you know, I think that there is just that alone to be able to interrupt this pattern that we might be in is so incredibly powerful. Yeah, completely. I love that you said it's interrupting a pattern. And you know, the vision that came to me while you were saying this, we started off saying emptying your mind. And I'm like, I actually mm. feel like what you're doing is cleaning up your mind. And listen, yes. I'm old school from the cassette tape generation. And I don't know if anybody listening to this podcast remembered having filing cabinets and offices that were full of papers and charts. And hey, you may be in an office. I mean, give a shout out on social media to Avanti and I, if you still got file cabinets in your office. And I feel like you're opening up the file cabinets of your brain and just allowing yourself to throw out files you don't need. And you're closing the files you don't need to focus on. And it's all of a sudden organized when you do that. It's, I, I love that analogy that was just came to me while you said that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's this interruption, right? That resets everything and allows you to come back in a different state almost in a different, yeah, in a different state of mind, quite literally, like, cause that's the way you, you know, it yeah. is. It is. And that's why people feel good after the first meditation. So let's talk about intermediate meditation where Absolutely. you've been now meditating. Most of the studies say to the best of your ability, 20 minutes a day um, for four to eight weeks. That's when we start to see intermediate changes. You know, the first stage, we see a lot of chemical changes that are in the brain and the brain's like, oh, I like this girl. You know, mm -hmm. the second stage is actually so powerful. So that same area that we were discussing, the amygdala, and that it goes into the hippocampus, we now know your temporal lobe, when you start meditating regularly for four to eight weeks, actually starts to change. We release something known as BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, the same thing that we see when you exercise regularly, and that we're actually growing cells in the memory area of the hippocampus region. So, you know, when people say, oh, as you get older, your memory gets shot. No, it's because we have inflammation. We're not taking care of ourselves. We're sleep deprived, all of that. You can actually grow some of those cells back. I, I think of one of the quotes, the, the studies, I still love to quote the, to this day is Dr. Sarah Lazar's uh, study. She's out of the Herbert Benson Mind Body Medicine Institute at Harvard Medical School back in like 2014 or 15. She did the brain scans of, um, you know, I, I think 20 to 25 meditators and who had never meditated before and followed them and actually saw growth in this area. When, at, when I went to med school and in neurology, they were like, your brain cells don't grow back. Yeah, they do. You can stimulate growth and repatterning. So that's one thing to know, but it's not only your memory in that area, then there's like better emotional control. So look, you have triggers of auntie. I have triggers. Stuff pisses off. We get emotional. Have you ever wondered like how some people can control emotions, good or bad? Like, this helps that. And then as you get into it, it, this intermediate meditation, four to six weeks, what else starts to happen? The pathways that are complex from this hippocampus and the brain that are tied to um, prefrontal cortex, frontal cortex, and, and your uh, kind of pain center, we know that now you've interrupted the networks that when something happens, you get anxious. 
a little bit of tweak in your back and you have severe back pain that requires pain medicine. You're, you have such severe depression, you're in a brain fog. Those networks now are overrided and new pathways are created in your brain that are now actually lifting you out of that depression. We know in clinical studies that have now going on for a decade that starting a regular meditation practice for 20 minutes a day in somebody who has refractory depression is as powerful as starting taking an antidepressant drug. Mm -hmm. So it is. And the studies are there for anxiety, for chronic pain, for uh, so many conditions. And so, you know, we don't have time, but you know, this is just kind of a very simplified overview of the structure and function of the brain. And so, you know, I'll be honest, I've had a regular meditation and people, if they've seen my TED talk and we'll give it in your show notes, no. Um, since about 2010, when I got sick and went into life-saving surgery, I mean, back in those days, my aunties were giving me cassette tapes to learn meditation. Like that's right. How, and you know, initially I got to be real with you. I saw the benefit right away and I lifted out of the burnout and the depression and I didn't need post-op pain meds. And then you feel better and you're like, oh, it's okay if I forgot to meditate today, I'm mm-hmm. traveling. And, and it would be like, uh, interruption of my brain for like just three, four weeks. And I wasn't meditating regularly. And all of a sudden that anxiety, busy brain pattern came back and I'm like, Oh, this is what happens when you stop meditating. So it's kind of like losing muscle mass. If you've been going to the gym and pumping iron and taking protein, and then you take a month or two off and you're like, wait, my muscles aren't as lean as before. That's exactly what's going on with the brain when with intermediate meditation. Yeah. And so is that for the listeners, what is meant by neuroplasticity? Because this is a word, this is a term that gets thrown out is in the studies. Yep. It's in the articles. People will hear about it in this wellness world, in this very health focused world. So let's, let's just define what does that mean? Is that what you're talking about? Yes, to some degree. Neuroplasticity actually is a neuroscientific term that has been oversimplified. And sometimes I get Indian auntie chest pain, just thinking of how it gets uh, (laughs) simplified, right? Neuroplasticity in its um, finest terms does mean uh, an ability of a brain cell and network to change and adapt, Mm -hmm. whether that is a good or a bad thing. So neuroplasticity was studied in epilepsy, right? And that, um, that if one part of the brain was seizing and we surgically removed it, another part of the brain could be trained to start having seizures. That's not a good thing in the brain. But the same thing can happen about neuroplasticity, we know, with improving the brain's ability to its cellular function to help in processes like memory and emotional control and mood and um, feeling calm instead of anxious or depressed can happen with a regular meditation practice. I think what is challenging for me is people make that five-step leap, and I don't know you could speak to this as well. When we look at other modalities of bringing yourself to present centered awareness, but that's not meditation. So let's think of like EFT, emotional freedom technique, or um, other modalities. People will be like, oh, that's neuroplasticity. And there there actually isn't studies on that. Now, what EFT or other modalities of, of healing are doing, um, and I'm, I'm blanking on some of the things that I hear about, but along the energy medicine lines, all the different trends and beautiful things that are out there, like healing hands therapy, et cetera. There's not actual study that if you do healing hands or EFT, here's change in neuroplasticity, where we looked at the, you know, spec scans of a brain or a functional MRI of a brain. 
But what we do know is when you do EFT, it starts to calm you down. And then you should sit down and meditate, right? Is is the key. It's the same thing if you're feeling really good and you're like, oh, Romy, my mindfulness practices when I'm running or swimming, I always ask my executives who say that, well, then could you sit down just for five minutes after you're done swimming or running and meditate then? That's helping to anchor in that mindfulness and meditation. Um, so that was a long-winded answer to neuroplasticity is that we've oversimplified it. And what I just described is yes, that it's the abilities brain cells to adapt and change the way they structure and function. And it can be a beneficial thing or a harmful thing. Right, right. And so it's not always a positive thing, but we can hopefully go in the positive direction by a regular meditation practice. And then this is just like your your sister doctor warning, like be careful of all the supplements and the energy drinks out there and people saying, come to this class and learn this, my Avanti or Romy's technique. We're going to improve neuroplasticity. Like, yeah, no, I'd like to see a brain science study first, but yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love that you, you clarified that. Okay. So let's go into the long-term effects. So we've done this four to six weeks. I've been meditating every day for 20 minutes. Now what's going to happen if I keep going? You keep it going for years. And I mean, I call it nature's best beauty trick. When we meditate for a long time, I'm going to start maybe in a more esoteric place. It changes our mind and our body and our spirit. And Avante, I don't know about you, but one thing I know is when I'm around people who've had a meditation or mindfulness-based practice, and they've been doing it for years, don't you just see this glow from them? And you're like, girl, what did you just get a facial? Was that Botox? No, that's meditation, right? Right. It's benefits that we know in clinical studies to promote longevity. Mm-hmm. and youthfulness, both in the brain and the rest of the body. And why mm-hmm. is that? Is that we know as you meditate regularly, it has this potent anti-inflammatory effect. The first two things I talked about were, sure, acute and intermediate anti-inflammatory effect. But as you go on and you meditate long-term, we know that when we take the brain scans of somebody who just started to meditate and they had all those great hormonal changes and experiences versus someone who's meditating long-term, they may not get that immediate dopamine high every time they sit down to meditate or that feel-good serotonin buzz. And, and, and I, I remember this, and many people who meditate, you know, you're going to get six, nine months into your meditation practice or two years, and you're like, why am I sitting here and not feeling calm? All of a sudden, this feeling of anger just came up out of nowhere, or grief, or rage, or a prickling sensation and mindfulness now teaches us not to be attached to that emotion. Just say, oh, this is anger. Uh, we often say it's some of your subconscious memories or thoughts clearing, but what happens is, and I'm human and this happens to me often too, is you'll sit there and be like, why is this anger coming up? And we immediately attach a story. Oh, it was because yesterday somebody at work like went off on me and we attach stories. And then it's, it's a risk to say, But what's really happening is a deeper stage of healing psychology, consciously and subconsciously. And this is why, for example, in addiction medicine, as people are going through recovery and rehab from drug and alcohol addiction, that meditating regularly can completely change the structure of their brain that they no longer are getting triggered for having a craving. Right. right? Mm -hmm. And, And that's it. We know that people who chronically uh, meditate or meditate long-term 
overall, their memory and cognition scores are higher than people that are meditating short term or have never meditated at all. So we give neuropsychology battery tests and we know that long term with the change and improvement and function of the brain that they not only have a better memory, but their processing skills, their executive analytical skills are superior, right? Um, How many of the most brilliant CEOs will tell you, I've had a meditation practice for 20 to 30 years and they know, they they know how to do that, not just this trend and pulling up an app. Um, We also know that people who meditate long-term are less likely than to develop depression or anxiety, or if they suffered from a mental health disease earlier, they're less likely to have a refractory episode. Um, We also know in patients with epilepsy, chronic refractory epilepsy, that when they meditate regularly and they're, you know, helping that stress response, that they are resetting a seizure threshold. So things that would normally stress the brain out and cause a seizure in a known epilepsy patient like sleep deprivation is less likely to happen. So what do all these things have in common? It's when the brain starts to misfire and the addict gets a craving or uh, epileptic brain is going to seize or a depressed patient is going to have the inflammation that leads back to a depressive episode, that that's less likely to happen. It's like you've permanently started to clean out your filing cabinets. Right. right. But what's even more powerful is typically for the non-meditating person, the brain is a sponge for negative thoughts, emotions, and experiences. We now know that a pattern of emotional resilience builds in people that chronically meditate. And those are the people who are like, how come they just go with the flow? Like that pissed me off and their feathers aren't ruffled. It doesn't mean that they're not paying attention and they didn't notice that something bad or an action was done towards them. They just don't react. It doesn't register as negative. It's, It's literally they're rising above the toxicity. Right. Because it's almost what you were saying is that they have that experience while they're meditating, they don't attach to it. And then it clears so that they're not taking that anger, that anxiety, that depression into their interactions with other people, with, you know, their life experiences out in the world, right? They've dealt with it while they're sitting in that chair or on that mat. Yeah. And all that in the things like the memories that we have that would trigger a bad memory, you know, but we know this, this is human nature, Monty. You and I are the same way. We're not above this. Is mm-hmm. something is unresolved from childhood or a, a early adulthood, a, a, you know, any, any size trauma, small or minor, somebody could come along and say something really harmless. And it triggers you because of other patterns of subconscious things of somebody just said, you should be vegetarian and it's triggering a trauma and you're now finding yourself yelling at a stranger about this rather than being like, thank you for your opinion, you know? And, and so when we chronically meditate, it almost doesn't register that like that trigger has been healed. Right. And so what's so interesting about what you're saying is that, you know, this, this goes back to sort of our shared perspective being Western trained MDs, South Asian women who grew up with yoga and Ayurveda as these ancient, beautiful healing traditions in our families, right? And so it's almost like what what you're translating right now for me and the the listeners is this brain science that we know we've we've studied it. But this ability to connect into yourself and to perhaps something else in the universe, whatever that is, it changes how you respond to things. You you have a different it it's almost like you're you're dealing with the traumas from the past, from a past life, if you believe that, whatever it is, 
there's something that's happening there that is beyond the realm of this world. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's what I'm thinking about while yeah, you're saying that, that. That's where the spirituality comes in. And I always, you know, when I train people in meditation or mindfulness in corporate teams, I have to be very mindful of, of, of course, dealing with diverse groups and we need to do it for everyone. But I want to honor kind of going back to the spiritual pathways of all the different major religions and cultures of the world that some type of meditation or mindfulness practice is a part of that. You know, we are not just a brain. We are not just a heart or an endocrine system. We are a mind, body, and spirit. And that we all have our spirit and there's always this inner knowing, whether you call, I call it your internal soul compass. Some people call it intuition. Some people call it, you know, their connection to divine, whatever that word is for you is if we're not learning and training ourselves to be still and present and go within and not react to what's going out, we miss what internal soul compass is directing us to do that divine guided moment. And, uh, you know, if you've ever listened to something and you're like, that gave me chills, that's your internal soul compass or intuition speaking to you. Or you wake up in the morning and you just get this weird knowing like, God, I haven't talk to that friend from college and ages, something is telling me to reach out. That's your internal soul compass. And that's what meditation helps. And this is why so many of my clients are, you see celebrities who are musicians and creatives taking on meditation. They want to quiet out the noise and tap into that creative divine energy that has made them brilliant painters or rappers or, you know, um, creative. So, so really it's, it's phenomenal. Um, and, and for me personally, I, I think it felt so traumatic in a time when I went through physician burnout. We weren't even calling it that, Avanti. And the, the burnout and the moral injury and healing from all of that, I had felt like my spirit was broken back then. That my, not only was my brain broken, my spirit was. And finding that meditation was healing. And I remember first my aunties telling me, Britta, what's happened to you? It's like the lights are on and nobody is home. You were such a happy young girl. And then I started the meditation practice. And this was just listening to cassette tapes and, man, you know, modeling the mantras until I came into my own meditation practice. And all of a sudden, the lights were back on. And that's what you're talking about. Like, that light is back on in us. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I felt, too, because I, I had that part of, you know, losing my spirit. I, I always say that when I sort of was down on my knees and went back to Ayurveda, it was because I realized that, you know, I had lost connection to everything. It was like exactly what you're saying. The lights were on, but nobody was there. And these mindful practices, going back to Ayurveda, yoga, meditation, actually turned the lights back on for me. So, and, and I want people to have that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I want to shift because I know that you have a couple more minutes with me and I want to honor your time because I want to talk about this amazing protocol you have, which is called the Brain Shift Protocol. Because I think what you've done so beautifully is taken this esoteric concept that we're talking about and you've made it understandable for the regular person, the CEO, the leader, and just for everyday people that are listening to this podcast, I want the listeners to just hear like, what is this brain shift protocol that you've developed to help people with this idea of this busy brain, the burnout that we all feel? Yeah. You know, um, Avanti, probably back in 2017, I started to study a concept. I, I speak for a living to corporate America and teams, and I would hear the same thing over and over about can't focus at work, can't shut down the brain off at night. And 
um, disturb sleep. And I really challenged this notion and started to research in the integrative functional medicine, neurology, psychiatry literature, that maybe we as neurologists and psychiatrists got it wrong, that ruminating anxiety, adult onset ADD, and insomnia are not three separate diseases. They're all one spectrum of inflammation. And I call that busy brain. How do we normally in Western culture deal with busy brain? We're caffeinating all day long to try to focus and have energy and, or taking prescription Adderall or drugs like that. And at night, people are using alcohol, a sleeping pill to calm down. And we need to get off of that stimulant sedative cycle. That's the busy brain, right? Um, so, so that's kind of the busy brain. And then I started to study it. You know, there isn't a one size fits all. It's just like, you know, your clothing you're wearing, it doesn't fit all. So the brain shift protocol was designed to look at the root cause of busy brain and shift stands for five key areas that we assess in individuals that go through our program, which is S is for sleep and your circadian rhythm. H is looking at the role of hormones. I is markers of inflammation. F is how we biohack food. And T is the role of technology. And really in the last few years, especially the role of technology in bringing on adult onset attention deficit disorder. So that's what the brain shift protocol is. So what does that mean to the real people? Well, this was it. We know in every workplace, there is a crisis of people being stressed and burned out. And we need a solution. And I learned early on in the pandemic, and nobody wanted to hear someone say, oh, just eat berries and breathe and everything's going to be fine. Like We had gone so <laughs> beyond that. Our busy brains right. were wired in a constant state of panic. And so we wanted to do that. So I had time on my hands in the pandemic. I started to do the research and bring my over 20 years of experience in neurology, integrative medicine, mindfulness together and say, what are the eight most impactful micro habits that can stack on each other that will mm -hmm. heal the negative impacts of stress and burnout? And how can we deliver this at scale using technology to teams? We have anywhere um, from corporate teams of 50 to 1,000 people going through brain shift at a time. And it's cohort-based learning, and they go through it with me live. And then there's the technology platform. We check labs and we give recommendations. But every week, there's a micro habit that they do. And it's amazing because not only are you doing it and feeling better, but now you're feeling this sense of connection to your team right. and that your company cares with you. And so, yeah, um, that that's what brain shift is. And I'm writing the book, Busy Brain Cure. And uh, yes, you are. publishing date is TVD. The book proposal's gone in after all these years of research. We're so excited. So and excited um, you. thank you. And we have the technology platform and the app that's building. So right now we only really deliver it to our corporate clients and teams who are calling for an innovative workplace wellness platform. As time goes on in the book, we will release an app and start doing mm -hmm. things with consumers and the community. But listen, if you're like, wait a minute, Romy, that sounds like I have a busy brain test. You can take our scientifically developed test for free. Go to my social media, go to the website. If you, mm -hmm. if you can, we'll, we'll link it in the, the show, show notes. Thank you. It's yep. free. You get a score mm -hmm. and we give you the first week of our brain shift protocol right there of what to do based on your score. So um, it's there and you can get an assessment and, you know, we really want to be of service to the public. So we put this part out, you know, and just share because we are just really determined. So that is the busy brain and brain shift. Thank you. That's amazing. Amazing. Well, I, I just want to thank you for that. And I will make sure that that's all linked in the show notes, the, the busy brain test and all of Dr. Romy's information. 
I just want to ask you one last question as we wrap up our time. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You know, if I offer up the phrase to catalyze healing, what comes up for you? You know, my initial thought, if I had to have a human sister moment with you is to feel overwhelmed. And sometimes when we think of healing, all the shoulda, woulda, couldas come in, you know, I know I should be eating cleaner. I would have exercised this morning, but I had an 8 a.m. business call. I could be doing better with my sleep. And so I think for me, catalyze healing is knowing when the coulda, shoulda, wouldas come up in your brain, that's a busy brain. And that's not your Mm. internal soul compass talking to you. I invite you to do something that will invite you to be still. And for those of you that have a busy brain, we talk often of being still and silently meditating will actually make the anxiety worse. So we actually ask people to do five to 10 minutes of a repetitive motion thing with and without digital devices, such as washing dishes or walking outside um, and counting your steps, um, shuffling a deck of cards, and then sit and be still. And that's what catalyzed healing is, is getting rid of the shoulda, woulda, couldas and really saying, that's my busy brain. That's not my best self. And going into your internal soul compass and asking in this moment, what is it that my spirit really needs to heal today in my brain and body and for my team? Hmm. I mean, I have chills. Beautiful. Romy, thank you so much. This was incredible. Yeah. Thank you for what you're doing, especially uplifting South Asian voices in this world of traditional healing. So much of our healing has been culturally appropriated. And by bringing not only me on as a doctor and a good friend, but as someone who is a practicing Sufi, it really honors to to anchor back into the traditions that are of our people and really stop the Instagram culture of people misappropriating our, our words. So thank you for catalyzing uh, that healing of our global healing traditions. Thank you. Thank you, sister. Love you so much. And your work is so important and I can't wait to see all the amazing things you do. I hope that all the listeners are going to take your quiz and follow you and, and really look at your work because I think it's so important in this world. Thank you, my dear. Thanks again for listening to the healing catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at Avanti Kumar Singh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.